0: Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba, Managing Partner of GrowthCap. In this episode, we chat with General Stanley McChrystal, who retired from the U.S. Army as a four-star general after 34 years of service. He is a partner at the McChrystal Group, a leadership consulting firm based in Virginia, and a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. General McChrystal's previous books, My Share of the Task, and Team of Teams, were both New York Times bestsellers. We hope you enjoy the show. So General McChrystal, absolutely honored to have you on our podcast. You know, we spent some time thinking of the right guest to have, you know, in terms of our leadership series, which we've been conducting for some time now. We're just so grateful that uh, you can spend the time with us uh, today. Maybe what we could do is uh, our audience will certainly know who you are, but they may not know the extent of your experience. So perhaps we could kick off with a little bit of your background if if that works.
1: Sure, RJ. And and thanks for including me in this. It's a real honor. Uh, And please call me Stan. You know, like a lot of people, I, I went into a business when I was young. I entered West Point in the U.S. military when I was 17 years old. My father and father's fathers had been career soldiers, so it was a pretty natural fit. I stayed in the army for the four years at West Point and then 34, a little more than 34 years after that. I had the, uh, the opportunity to serve in a variety of units, most light infantry, parachute infantry, ranger infantry. And then the last part of my career, I, I commanded an organization called Joint Special Operations Commander, the nation's counterterrorist forces, and then wound up my career as the uh, commanding general of NATO and U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And so I I got the opportunity to experience the Army from second lieutenant to four-star general. And then when I left the service in 2010, along with a a friend, I started a company called McChrystal Group, which is a leadership advisory or consulting firm. We started at my kitchen table with two of us shook hands and went forward. Now we got about 100 people, office in Alexandria and an office in London. And I've also written three books with the, the second two with teams, with co-authors. And so that's been a great uh, journey. I've gotten to be on several corporate boards. And so that's been ex- exciting. And then for nine years, I'm just about to finish my ninth year of teaching leadership at Yale as well. And so this weekend, I'll take my Yale class to Gettysburg to, to look at the leadership aspects of that. And that's something we do every year. So I've been able to be involved in a number of things with a number of experiences and clients uh, associated with that. So it's been a real pleasure and an honor.
0: Well, I've certainly been amazed at you know, all the things that you have kind of moving along in parallel here. I uh, was able to read your latest book, uh, Leaders, which is you know, a very unique take on explaining how leaders can be effective by different means, and so maybe reflecting on—and I mean, there's a lot of things we can we can cover here—but maybe we'll hit on kind of the topic of of leadership right up front. We're, I think, I, I think the broader community is always fascinated about leadership in the military, and we see that there's a lot of kind of discipline ingrained that's been built up kind of through the years. It's just a you know tradition of kind of leadership and excellence, but you know, maybe reflecting on, you know, your time in the military, what were some of the the key leadership traits or tactics that you really honed in on there?
1: Yeah, it's a great place to start, because when you start learning leadership, in my case at West Point, you study leaders who are successful, and you start to see the idea that if you do a certain number of things, you have certain behaviors, or if you're blessed with certain traits, or you have discipline to, to exhibit qualities of leadership, that you're going to be an effective leader. And we tend to think of those as sort of values-based, but also things that you do. The the real disconnect starts to come as you go through a career and you find first that the leaders who are actually successful in different situations can be frighteningly different. And someone who On paper, or at least first glance, has all those qualities or or attributes of a great leader can actually fail, and do pretty often. And then people who seem to have none of them, the unlikely person, can often be remarkably successful. And so you step back and say, well, maybe we have the traits wrong. Maybe we we need different traits in our list. But then what you sort of come around to is it's really not a set of universal traits that if you do these, you're going to be successful. Leadership is actually something that's very organic or dynamic. It's the interaction between leaders, their followers, and leaders in the always unique uh, circumstances that they find themselves in, the context of the situation. So what you find is every leadership experience and therefore the requirement to be effective is different in every case. And so when you when you take that, you step back and you say, now, wait a minute, I thought I was perfecting myself as a leader by learning a certain way to do things, certain plays I run, certain ways I act and interact with people. And what we found is that's not true. And if you think back to your experiences, you sort of know that's not true also. So we wrote this latest book, Leaders. We looked at 13 very diverse leaders. We looked at people from Margaret Thatcher as a political leader to Boss Tweed to Martin Luther King Jr. to, uh, Harriet Tubman. Uh, so that this very diverse group of leaders. And what we find is there's no formula for leadership success, but there are some, some commonalities in how a person emerges. And that's, being right for the moment either being right for the moment by accident because their particular style intersects with things that they are and they emerge maybe maximilian robespierre the french revolution or somebody who is naturally adaptable one who can have the empathy and the, the sensitivity to listen and to sense out what's required in the moment and then provide that kind of leadership and some leaders are able to to morph their style significantly to meet the the, uh, the circumstances as they arrive in each place, and and that at the end of the day becomes the most impressive leader to me.
0: And maybe we can take this a step further and apply it to kind of the corporate context. There's a variety of industries that you know the McChrystal Group specializes in. Is there kind of a, a case study for? technology playing a role in, you know, whether it's kind of a disruptive technology that's come about, you know, in a, in a given sector that's, that's causing certain players to rethink their strategies or some outside, it doesn't necessarily have to be technology, it could be some out, outside factor that's affecting a, a given company. I guess broadly, it's, it's change management. How does the kind of leader emerge or how can they emerge more effectively during times of great change?
1: Yeah, it's a great one. And we think about what drives great change. Typically, if you go back to the 1960s, if you got on the Fortune 500 list, you statistically were going to be there for 60 years. That's not true at all anymore. It's, It's slightly over a decade now. And so the reality on average. And so the reality is that there was a time when if you built scale and professionalism into an organization, think Sears and Roebuck, think, you know, any of the other big automobile companies or something, you were pretty good to go because the moat, uh, that prevented competition from really attacking you was, was pretty wide and deep. That's changed dramatically now because now the barriers to entry in many, uh, industries are pretty low. Or people don't take you on entirety. They take on just a chunk of your business. So if we worked with a big consumer goods company that had extraordinary levels of success. But then they started finding a number of very small niche companies would come in and sell designer dog food for, for big dogs. Then someone else comes in and sells designer dog food for French poodles and, and whatnot. And you say, well, no big deal because they're not really competing with us. Well, what they're doing is they're cutting out significant market share and they've got a low threat to themselves because if they fail, no problem. There's not a there's not a huge investment there. Suddenly, what the big previous companies are left with is sort of the, the commoditized low margin uh, remnants of the marketplace. And that's tough to run uh, practic or profitably. So so that's one. We worked with one computer or consumer product organization that was being attacked, not by a single big competitor, but a bunch of other competitors who were de facto allied together, although they didn't know it. They weren't coordinating. It's just they were all going to take a bite out of the elephant. The elephant was was losing quite a lot of hide. And so the requirement is this big company can't do the traditional things. It can't point to its moat and say no big competitor will come. It has to become very adaptable and decide how it wants to compete in those niche areas. It's gotta be faster. It's gotta be much more connected to specific nuances of the marketplace. And it's gotta have what we have found a much more decentralized decision-making process so that those parts of the organization that perceive risk or opportunity don't have to go all the way up to the top of the organization for a bureaucratic decision. They can instead execute very close to the problem. And we found with information technology, you can, you can do those kinds of actions and keep the, the main corporate headquarters informed much more rapidly than people think. The biggest challenge now is the cultural part of that. It's not the, the practical or technological connection part of it. And we see this same Kind of a theme play out across different uh, uh, sectors of the economy. We've done a lot of work in healthcare. That's that's the same way. Healthcare is being disrupted every which way from Sunday, and people aren't really sure the direction it's going to go. But what they found is they have to be changing on a continuous basis. There's no such thing as changing and then locking everything down and spending two or three years or longer enjoying that. In fact. You are changing every week of every month. And if the organization's psyche and processes are not built upon that assumption, then it's a significant problem.
0: Where do you find your team spending most of the time? Which, which sectors? I mean, you mentioned uh, healthcare and consumer products. Are, are those the two primary sectors or are, are there others that you?
1: It's funny. When we started the, the company, we had a guess where we'd be, but we started in a lawn and garden company, Scott's Miracle Grove. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're thinking, what could we possibly do? They had 60% market share. They were doing really, really well. And people say, well, you know, what are lawn and garden people going to do? I mean, how smart are they? And and my response has always been, well, they sell dirt and you buy it. You tell me who's smart. Uh, (laughs) But the reality is it was a very competitive environment that involves developing cutting edge uh, products. And then getting those cutting edge products to the point of sale in exactly the right moment, because people only want to buy lawn and garden products when they need them. And because the weather in the spring and at other times is unpredictable, you're never 100% sure when they need them. So you've got to be remarkably agile and you've got to be able to respond to if a competitor comes out and says that your grass seed causes cancer, you've got to be able to respond to that. And so what we found was what we thought was sort of a staid market was actually very, very dynamic. And so we started with them and they made extraordinary progress. We've been in the financial sector, several of the big banks, and we find that, of course, they have the same challenge. They've got to be able to make changes. We've done a fair amount of work with Bank of America and Merrill Lynch, to let their wealth managers their fi- think financial advisors who work with people you know families to make them more adaptable and able to leverage the capacity of the organization so we we thought we would get into healthcare right after we founded the company it took several years and we weren't quite sure why it didn't fit and now we're in a big way so i think we just hadn't approached it carefully enough
0: and where do you find the the most overlap is between kind of your experience in the military and the advice you can give to corporations. Are there certain best practices that you could take from the military and apply it to the corporate life or the corporate organization?
1: It's interesting. When we go into a big company and they describe they've got good people working hard, great values, that's pretty pretty much the norm but they've got a fair amount of bureaucracy and process which slows them down. We find that our military experience is almost perfectly aligned with that. And we will joke with people about, you know, the military invented bureaucracy and then perfected it. And so we work in a number of big companies that that have that same challenge, that have scale, great professionalism and commitment like the US military on the part of their members. But you're trying to change something that has been created over sometimes centuries, but typically decades for sure. And you, you're trying to make a cultural change in response to market forces. And, and that's remarkably difficult to do. And so what we do is we go into those organizations, typically do a diagnostic or analysis, which gives them a, a pretty fascinating picture of how their organization actually functions and it's always different from the org chart. And then when when people understand how their organization functions, they can start to say, well, we could make these incremental improvements in our our outcomes by these points of leverage. And typically, those are not difficult to find, and they just mean you got to roll your sleeves up. But as we work with firms, it's their change. We don't come in and tell people, okay, you got to restructure, you got to fire these people, here's a package of slides, give some money, and we'll leave. What we do is we come in and we work with them and give them data and then work with them to figure out what the, how they would want to change. And then we stay with them through the change because I think you need that partnership to, to get to the point where they've got a sustainable change that is actually going to last for a long time.
0: How are you able to kind of like structure the right team for a given client?
1: Yeah, when we started we had myself and another former military uh, member who started the company. We hired some people that we knew, so there's a certain DNA to this organization that is really rooted in special operations forces from the U.S. And then over time, we brought in some colleagues from the CIA and other parts of government, but that's really only about 30 percent of the company. I mentioned we have about a 100 people about. Thirty of a military background of some kind. As we've grown, we brought in people from industry. A senior exec from Dow Chemical. We brought in the president of Scott's Miracle Grow that I had mentioned before. We brought in a former Undersecretary of the Air Force. So we brought in people to round out our team to give us different perspectives, different backgrounds. And then at the younger age, you know, we we hire a certain number of people out of universities. And then at at the middle age, or the middle grade, I'd say, uh, we bring people who've had this breadth of experience. And what we're trying to do is come at every problem without a military mindset or a strictly commercial mindset, but blend those with very experienced leaders who are adaptable. The key thing is, it's not just what you did, it is, do you have the mindset to be the kind of adaptable leader and help partners become adaptable, to build relationships that do that. That's really, we think, the competitive advantage that we, uh, we reinforce.
0: With all your kind of experience to date and, and all the success that you've uh, achieved, are there certain kind of core tenets that you, you live by that you feel are kind of the foundation of how you operate?
1: Yeah, there are. Um, the first thing is, I I think a lot of military people learn from the military certain values or habits, you know, personal self-discipline, focus on something, treating people like they matter because in the military, your people are what you have and they have to take care of them and so build relations. So I think those things are sort of basic. I would say the biggest thing is, and I was taught this as a lieutenant, never forgotten it, if it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid and so i'm a great believer in at the end of the day what you're trying to do is not do it the way doctrine says do it not doing something the way that you know you did it before but doing it in the way that you get the right outcome so that you succeed so you got to be you can't fall in love with your experience you can't fall in love with the what you think the right answer is you've got to be extraordinarily willing to take in information, shift what you're doing, change until you're successful. And that's that's an interesting, it's easy to say, but it's a quality a lot of people don't have because what we find is if someone else does something a certain way, it becomes the accepted way of doing something, the approved solution, you might say. When you come up on a problem again, it's safe for leaders who hear about that and know that to mimic that behavior because they'll never be considered uh, uh, open to criticism if they do what worked before. Somebody else did this at work, so if I do that, I'm I'm safe. The reality is you're not safe because conditions change. And yet what we've got to do is find people who come at each problem in a way that says, what is this problem? How can I do it? And sometimes that means adapting a a never-tried-before solution, and that can be frightening. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, certainly, I I think the uh, theme of uh, adaptability and trying new things and adapting to the changing environment is key to thriving. Do you still keep up the same type of physical training regimen
1: that you were known for in in the military? I do. I work out every day, no matter what time I I, uh, have to leave in the morning. I'm going to leave tomorrow at 5, so I'm going to work out from 3 to 4.30. Um, and you say, wow, that's that's impressive. You're so self-disciplined. No, it's now a habit. And I have learned that if I don't stick with that habit, I make myself unhappy. And so it's easier for me just to, to stick with my habit. Um, and that's, I, you know, I've got plenty of bad habits. So those good habits that you stick with just become really important.
0: hmm is is that uh is that running uh, primarily or you, you do other uh, uh exercises
1: yeah i I alternate now. There was a period in my life when all I did was ran run and now what i do is i alternate i'll run for at least an hour uh one morning like I did this morning, and then on alternate days, I will do a gym workout i I built a gym in my home yeah, and so i'll spend about an hour it takes me a little longer i'll do an hour and a half. And that way I don't get injured with overuse of one thing. And then whenever I can, I do a second workout in the day. I I work out most of the time just in the morning, but if I have time later in the day, I'll go in and do 34 minutes on an elliptical. I don't know why 34, it's just a habit, but I, and it just, it makes me feel better. So the working out is a part of who I am. It's part of my identity to myself. And, you know, that's, so it becomes critical to me. And
0: do you still just do one meal a day?
1: I still do one meal a day. That's just a habit. Every once in a while, I'll violate it. Like this weekend, I, I was out with my two little granddaughters and we went to breakfast and I'm taking in to breakfast. So I eat breakfast. And, you know, because part of it's the social thing of doing that. But then it's funny. Then my body just tells me the rest of the day, hey, you weren't supposed to eat in the morning, so you're not going to have dinner. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know self-discipline can be you know a boomerang comes back and hits you in the head too
0: stan you've been very generous with your time again very honored to, to speak with you and so thank you for all the uh, insights you provided us and we look forward to, to sharing this conversation with our audience
1: well rj it's been an honor to be on with you and a real pleasure thank you stan take care